You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett for this 6th of October. Today, unable to visit Palestine, where you can join a virtual tour with a Palestinian tour guide, I'll be speaking with journalist Andrew Jackson, who will facilitate the webinar. Trump or Biden? The danger is there for the people of America. A first-hand look at US politics with Sean Reynolds, speaking from New York. Gene ethics and regenerative agriculture and more with Bob Phelps. The Edward Sayed Memorial Lecture, also online this year. I'll be speaking with the person who began the lectures back in 2005, Bassam Daly. And the fourth and final week of the extradition hearing for Julian Assange at the Old Bailey with Jacob Gregg. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had another one of those weeks. A week, Jane, listener, when I'm hoping you can sort out or decipher a very strange message Saturday morning when I returned from shopping, checked messages, and a friend telling me she may have to reassess her beliefs because she said, maybe there is a God after all. I've got no idea what she was talking about. Maybe a conversion on the road too because she did seem to be very happy. Not so happy, of course, this depressing news from the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world that poor Donald Trample the poor, the big spimo, has come down with the Chinese disease, which he knows is about to disappear, and maybe the Rose Garden gathering to announce the nomination of Amy Catholic Barrett to bring the law of the dear baby Jesus to the Supreme Court has turned out to be a bit of a problem. And in that spirit, Reports are that people are praying, but the reports didn't say what they were praying for. Mentioned last week how Topsy Security had not guarded quarantine hotels with no one knowing who got them there. Apparently no one signed the contracting out contract. Probably one of the overnight cleaners in Treasury Place, also the product of contracting out, always blame a wage slave. Except, of course, as we said, it was the Beecher-Stowe effect topsy from the days of unwaged slaves. But interesting, a clearly arts-conservative writing in the Troublewasi Capitalist Review attacked the pejorative Dan and the team for maintaining the dated dichotomy between employers and workers when we know they have common interests because documents before the quarantine inquiry showed the government had consulted Trades Hall to determine which security firms were the obvious oxymoron a good employer. And the writer was aghast they would be so biased because caring business class governments would never consult caring employers on any matter. But the article raises an interesting question. Who consulted Trades Hall? Because we can assume the who consulted must have known something about the contracting out, unless Topsy also contacted Trades Hall. Also interesting that the army of critics excoriating the pejorative and co over the privatisation of quarantine security are still the biggest advocates of contracting out, of privatising any government service that can turn a neat little profit for the private sector. But the federal government remains aware the prosperity of the community depends on the private sector. Thus, 
big Supremo scuttled them more or less son, a.k.a. Scummo's declaration that we must allow market forces on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy to get back to doing what it does best, holding out its hand for the government to fill up the begging bowl or holding out the bowl, or begging hand, or whatever, and how will the laissez-faire discipline of the market, good for all of us, do this for us? With billions more of the public purse. In the same week that JobKeeper and JobSeeker funding was slashed, and this ripping off by evil unions and lazy avaricious workers was exposed in Thursday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin with an objective report on a mooted wage rise at the ABC. Fury! As ABC staff defy pay freeze, the headline screamed. And what balanced reporting? ABC staff have been branded self-indulgent for insisting on a pay rise when other public sector workers on the front line of the coronavirus pandemic have had their wages frozen. 80% of the public broadcaster's staff voted against a proposal to defer the pay rise for six months and to instead pocket the cash immediately. What selfish, selfish workers. The objective, balanced report suffering only from that split infinitive and that story of word read balanced by the P1 headline, 1.5 billion to supercharge manufacturing, jobs kick for Vic. Positive good news story. And ironically, the continuation of that story, 1.5 billion jobs boost for Victoria, just below the story of worker greed. Caring employers receiving billions, good for all of us. Self-indulgent workers pocketing the cash, a threat to social order. Presumably on that logic, we hope workers taking the jobs created, if one and a half billion ends up doing that, will not want to rip off their caring employers' government money by expecting some of it. And we wonder, that bit about frontline workers having their wages frozen, just how much say those workers had in the frozen bit. Thankfully, we're getting into warmer weather, so they probably won't freeze quite as much as they're in their comfortable little gutters. Why does gutter remind me of the biggest debate about the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world? Big, de- big debate was whether the brouhaha babel, babel could be called debate, despite the great respect and courtesy on display, as would-be big supremo Joe Biden by capital spoke for about 15 to 20 percent of the time, and big supremo Donald Trump or the poor for only about 99 percent of the time, meaning whatever Joe was saying we couldn't hear anyway, but I definitely that would detract from our collective knowledge, although there was a universal verdict, well, in the US of which regards itself as the universe verdict on the victor, uh, what's the third choice? The electorate screamed desperately and hopefully, God bless America, because it'll sure as hell need it. We're aware of the odd problem financial whiz kid AMP on the capital has struck, like little matters such as failing to notice that so many of the customers from whom it was gouging profits were long since dead, and then appointing a sexual harasser to a senior position, and then being forced to unappoint the sexual harasser after the proverbial hit the fan. And we are also aware that our mainstream news sources have a stable of economic gurus they dredge up regularly to explain to us the intricacies of the delicate flower that is the economy, one of whom is AMP on the customer's chief economist Shane Oliver for profit. Well, 
A mob called Stockspot does an annual review of the 100 largest super funds and discovered that, surprise, surprise, who would have believed, an AMP on the capitals fund came in at number 100, the worst in the country, with a return of minus, that's right, minus 2.2%. In other words, workers in that fund lost money. Stockspot commenting, this is the first time over the eight years we've done this report we've ever seen a balanced fund with negative five-year returns. And guess who manages this little financial disaster? Yep, the brilliant go-to for expert comment and advice, Chief Economist Shane. So we should be hanging on every word of his expert deliberations and advice. Although my non-expert advice for those who believe in investing in capitalism and exploiting those who produce the world is take notice of Shane's advice and do the opposite. Maybe Shane advised the government in 2018 on the purchase of 12 point something hectares of land for a second runway at the new Western Sydney Airport for which the public purse handed over 30 million to a couple of billionaires. Even though the land won't be required for 32 years, 22 times higher than the New South Wales government paid for a similar parcel of land, leading the Auditor General to issue a blistering report that the purchase was unethical. Best saying the 30 mil was only 27 or so mil above the real value. The government reassessing the value shortly after from 30 mil to 3 mil and then leasing the land back to the billionaires once they, the billionaires recovered from laughing all the way to at a valuation of 920,000, bit less than 30 mil. Oh, and the government also spent another 10 mil to build an underpass to link two pieces of land owned by the billionaires. And, oh, again, a few months later, the government could have picked up the land for millions less through compulsory acquisition. Hard to imagine why the Auditor General was so critical, or why independent Polly Zali Stegall claimed it was a classic reason why we need a federal anti-corruption body. Finally, Final word, though, to the billionaires, Tony and Ron Perich, or Perich, P-E-R-I-C-H, real names, who said the 30 mil they pocketed was fair and reasonable, for which they galloped away with the they-would-say-that-wouldn't-they award of the week. Good afternoon. And thanks once again to Kevin Healy for his week that was. And remember, tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock on 3CR, for City Limits with Kevin and the crew. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and 
The truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Tomorrow evening at 7.30, Free Palestine Melbourne is presenting a virtual annexation tour of the West Bank with Ihab Grafi from 24 Palestine Tours. It's a virtual tour from the outskirts of Jerusalem to Jericho and then up the Jordan Valley, talking to villagers and farmers along the way with some details about the social and economic impacts, particularly around farming and water. The facilitator of the online presentation and Q&A is freelance journalist Andrew Jackson, who reported for The Age between 2000 and 2011. And Andrew was also a participant in the 2020 study tour organised by Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. So she knows firsthand some of the areas you'll see on the virtual tour and able to compare with what she saw it nine months ago, focusing on the Jordan Valley. So begin, Andrew, with a geography lesson for people not familiar with the Jordan Valley. Yes, it's on the border between Jordan, Israel, and I think Syria is along the border as well. They're certainly um, along the border of the Jordan River, and also most people wouldn't have heard of the Dead Sea, so the Dead Sea is just beyond the um, what's currently the Israeli-controlled Jordan Valley. That whole area of the Jordan Valley up till 67 was controlled by Jordan. The area that's now under basically Israeli um, control, but there are some areas that are under the Palestinian Authority control, that was originally part of Jordan. When it was under Palestinian control, what did they do with that land? Well, most of the um, Jordan Valley is used for grazing and there's a lot of Bedouins there um, that have herds. It's also used for agriculture. The main um, product would be the dates. The dates were really famous throughout the Middle Eastern world um, and it's also used for producing olives. There are a lot of olive groves there. Up till 67, it was a very productive area um, for the local Palestinians. And what did you find when you were there earlier this year? In the Jordan Valley itself? Yeah. Yeah, it's very much an area that is effectively under Israel's control, even though since 
the Oslo Accords, 93-94, large areas of the West Bank were divided into areas that are A, B and C. Um, and A and B are ones that, for example, are under the authority of the um, Palestinian Authority and Area C are the ones that are under what's called Israeli Civil Administration. Where we were in the Jordan Valley, we were near a little a village or town called Badala and parts of that were under areas A and B but other parts, and mainly the agricultural part, were under Area C. What we saw and heard, heard about was the difficulty for farmers in that area and shepherds with having the Israeli presence there because what's, what's happened is that, as I mentioned before, their land is very fertile and it was a big agricultural production area in the past. But that depends on water. And now because one of the, um, or the Israeli um, water company has uh, taken over control of the wells that the local Palestinians had and as well they initially boarded off access to the river um, which has since dried up from everyone taking water from there but then the Palestinians in the West Bank dug underground and tapped tapped the water and built their own wells but when they and that area around there historically it's a quite famous artisan basin and anyway, so the Palestinians built their own wells. Then this Israeli company came along and built wells next to them um, to take take the water. Then they also, the Israeli uh, company, was then digging underground and also tapping into the water of the um, Palestinians. And so what the situation now is, the Israeli company, which is called um, Mekarot, it's an international company now, they control the water supply and what the Palestinians do locally in the Jordan Valley, they're left without, basically without water and what they often do is they tap into the Israeli pipelines for which they can be fined. Otherwise, they also can import, it seems ridiculous, they have to import water from other areas which they have to pay for. When they do that, the trucks carrying the water, the tankers, they, they have to go through security checkpoints and often those tankers are held up. So if you're a farmer and um, you're waiting on your water, that can have quite serious um, consequences. And under the Oslo Accords, there was an agreement on water, Israel, has basically unlimited access to water. So when I say Israel, in terms of the West Bank, that means the illegal settlements. Um, they've got unlimited supply to water. And the Palestinians were given a nominated amount of water under the Oslo Accords, but that's never been met. So when they're tapping into the Israeli supplies, that's water that they're using for personal use, for drinking, for agriculture. As some of the activists in the area said, it's a humanitarian issue. You know, water is a human right. And it's not only affecting them personally in terms of health, because you need water to drink, you need water for agriculture. So it also has an impact on their economy. I'd imagine it's also difficult being a, an activist there too with those Israeli 
living there and also the, the military not far away. What's happened in the, in the past is that um, the town that we visited, Badala, for example, the entire cow, town has been placed under curfew at, at, at um, one time. And, I mean, we've just come through a curfew, but our curfew is very different to what they undergo because they're surrounded by, you know, armed soldiers with guns and um, you don't dare move. And these curfews can, and like roadblocks, they're very random. You never know when they're going to happen. And, of course, they have a huge impact on moving um, goods if you're trying to trade with other Palestinian areas. Are the Bedouins in that area also under attack? Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry, the, the um, other thing I, I wanted to say was that the Israelis every so often will arrest farmers, shepherds, for tapping into the water, it's called kidnapping, and uh, someone will just disappear for a couple of days and be taken to an Israeli jail. And on top of that, they can be fined. If they're found guilty, they can be fined. And the fines range from two thousand to six thousand dollars Australian. They're in shekels, of course, but yes, which is a huge amount. And often the, the people that are arrested, that they are the um, the Bedouins. Um, and there's one man, Abdul Rahim Bisharet. Uh, he was arrested uh, 32 times over a two-week period. When we're talking Bedouins, their houses are not houses like we think of the houses, but you know they're structures and they provide shelter for the family. Yes, and the soldiers just come around and pull them down. Do the soldiers also kill their animals? Um, I didn't hear examples of that, but I wouldn't be surprised. And I do think that, that there's been occasions of that happening with the, the settlers. Often the settlers come down and um, they'll try and destroy the, the, the crops or make it difficult, difficult for the local farmers, the Palestinian farmers. I'd imagine that many of the farmers have just given up, which is too difficult to stay there. And the population's a lot smaller yeah. than what it used to be. Yes, there's been a massive exodus from 60, around 67. There are about uh, 320,000 Palestinians, and that's now down to in the west, in in that area of the, the valley, and that's now down to 65,000. Some of those people went to other areas of the West Bank, others, there's quite a significant number, as you probably know, in Jordan. And now around 11,000 settlers have moved in. I, I should add that um, there are settlements that are very close to Bardala, for example, one that um, called Mahola, and they have swimming pools, they have lush, lush gardens. It's such a contrast to the uh, desperate need for water in the Palestinian villages. What could or would annexation mean for these people? Well, they argue that effectively Israel already has control. What it would mean in terms of what Israel has in mind is that my understanding going back some time was that Israel wanted to just take over the whole Jordan Valley because, as I said at the start, it's such a fertile area. I think Israel would continue with its plan of pushing in more settlers and the people in the um, Jordan Valley would be pushed into other areas that are deemed Palestinian. 
part of a so-called Palestinian state. This is according to the plan. I'm not saying that that's necessarily viable, but I think, and I think that's what people fear, that forced movement of people. Did people talk to you about the Palestinian Authority while you were there and what they thought of their role and what they have or haven't done for the people? What I did pick up was that there's a certain sense of disillusionment, particularly because there's been so many political divisions and that the PA doesn't seem to be that effective. But I noticed that um, the PA and Hamas have just come to, well, reportedly come to an agreement to put their differences aside and they're going to have elections. So that would give the Palestinians a unified voice which they haven't had in recent years, and that's really um, counted against them. Are you aware of what support the people in the Jordan Valley get from Jordan itself? Not really. I do do know they get a a fair bit of overseas support. There's a group there called the um, Jordan Valley Solidarity, and they're very well organised, and their aim is to protest against the Israeli encroachments by staying on their land, refusing to give up. So every time a house, like Mr Bishowitz, is pulled down, they rebuild and they keep on rebuilding. So they refuse to give ground, even though they're being hammered. They try to get their message out internationally, like I recently watched a Zoom from a Palestinian support group in Britain. And so people from the Jordan Valley Solidarity Group were talking to them in England. And when we were there, there was also international activists that had come to help them with um, building a community hall. They do attract international activists to come and help them with their various projects. Have you been able to keep in touch with some of the people you met back in January? Well, only people from... Badala, where we we did the interviews, and that's because I was ringing them back to update the story to see where things were now. One of the problems of keeping in touch with them is Jordan Valley Solidarity mans an email desk, but it takes about three or four days to get a response, and then I had to talk directly to the, one of the people I'd I'd interviewed, uh, Rashi Al Qadari. And I think it took two weeks of ringing just about every night before I could get a call through because transmission services, they're very bad in that area, the same with electricity. So it makes it very hard to um, keep in contact. The most effective way is really email, but as I say, there's quite a delay with that. The trip you made in January was part of the APAN yearly trip and, of course, a study tour and, of course, there won't be one this year, so instead they're having a virtual tour of the areas. If you look up the internet, you'll find that there are a few virtual trips of the West Bank and Gaza. Yes, look, I think because of the coronavirus, it's not just in politics, it's in arts, every music, everything it has gone online and there are lots of um, Zoom activities and I've also no- noticed that There's a lot of Jewish tours going on as well, but they're all 
different and the particular tour that has been commissioned and which will be shown on Wednesday night, that's one that's run from a Palestinian perspective. So not, not all the tours that are online are from the same perspective. be interesting, Andrea, to see the areas that you've been to 10 months later to see what's changed or what hasn't changed? Yes, yes, I'm very, very keen to see that and I'm very keen to see in the film how much the man that's making the film for us, um, Ehad, who's a local tour guide, how much he's able to show and I think it's really important and invaluable to have this um, film being made because a lot of insight into what happens in the Palestinian areas only comes from going there yourself because often the mainstream press doesn't cover what's happening on the ground. I found through doing my research some of the best coverage comes from, for example, Al Jazeera, but we don't regularly get to see these articles. Okay, well, thank you, and you'll be a facilitator for the evening. That's right, and we'll be having questions and answers at the end. Thank you, Andra. Thank you. I've been speaking with Andrew Jackson, journalist and activist, about the webinar which is going to be held tomorrow night at 7.30 by Free Palestine Melbourne. It's a virtual annexation tour of the West Bank with Ehab Graffi and Andra will be the facilitator. So do get onto the website, Free Palestine Melbourne, fairly quickly to make sure that you are registered for tomorrow night at 7.30. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterised by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. You've heard about the annexation of Palestinian land, but now join Free Palestine Melbourne and West Bank tour guide Yehab Rafri for a virtual tour of the West Bank. From Jerusalem to Jericho and up the Jordan Valley, see what annexation means to the social and economic life of affected Palestinians and hear directly from local farmers and villagers about what it means for them. The tour will be followed by a Q&A session. The facts on the ground. Annexation from Jerusalem to the Jordan Valley virtual tour. Wednesday the 7th of October at 7.30pm. Register at the events page of fpmelbourne.org. That's fp 
www.melbourne.org. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Sean Reynolds is a co-coordinator with Chicago-based anti-war human rights organisation Voices for Creative Nonviolence. When I contacted Sean, there was a lot of important issues I wanted him to talk about. Enduring wars, racism, inequality. But following the disgraceful debate between Trump and Biden at the end of last month and now the spectacle of Trump in hospital, I began this way. How are people feeling that you know? Because you get so many false facts and half-truths and downright lies. How are people feeling about this one with him with COVID in hospital? Or are they, or are they saying, well, it's a, it's a wonder we didn't get it before and as um, Carl Bernstein said, homicidal negligence. Obvious responses will be that his homicidal negligence led to America being a massive COVID reservoir with which to infect the rest of the world, uh, and his indifference to the illness uh, has taken, we can't tell how many lives, uh, merely in terms of his example of ignoring it um, and his refusal to prepare. America is a very business-run country, and Trump has to exemplify a certain laissez-faire attitude an, an idea that government or any sort of a, a concerted democratic action is unnecessary to deal with issues. Produce no action in the name of laissez-faire and in the name of letting the poor die if nature wants them to die. I'm worried for how the political scene might change if Trump passes from this illness. And I'm worried, of course, about how the political scene will change if doesn't. Although I wish him well as I would anyone with this, with this illness. I'm alarmed at Biden's decisions to go easy and to pull his negative advertising and to go uh, into well-wishing mode uh, to the extent that he's done so. It's, it's a very frightening time for America and for the world. I suppose we're all watching this very carefully and with bated breath. Sean, can I go back to the debate? It's been described as a 90-minute tirade of abuse, which to yes. some extent would have been expected while mm-hmm. others didn't expect it. But behind that ugly display, what did it tell you about the likely future of areas of national importance for the citizens of the US and beyond? What did it tell you? It seemed indicative of a hollowing out of American democracy. I was out there in Iowa before the virus hit, trying to get Bernie Sanders the Democratic nomination as an individual. A number of people I know were. We had a remarkably strong showing for a, a left-leaning candidate hostile to the business interests that fund our elections and, and generally get to pick the candidates um, and fund the media and generally get to uh, form the national debate. But we didn't win. We have two of the most objectionable candidates we've seen in modern history and two of the least articulate and least coherent candidates. So it's hard not to see the uselessness of that debate as an indication of uh, flaws in the electorate, or at least in their attitude, a deficit in respect for democracy and concern for whether democracy happens. That was also evident in the handling of the COVID pandemic. 
a lot of our society has bought the idea that progress will go on indefinitely, whether or not there's any citizen concern in how the country is run. That's not even an attitude under which capitalism can continue, because capitalism requires a lot of the virtues of family, church, of labor union, of town. The market seems to wipe away a lot of the character needed in order just to maintain a market um, over time and in order to maintain a coherent society. So it's quite alarming to watch an America that thinks, for one thing, that nuclear weapons was some sort of fad, were some sort of fad in the 80s and that there's never going to be a revival. The time isn't right for a revival of the fad of anti-nuclear protest, a sense that everything will be fine if we simply enjoy ourselves. And it seems to produce people like Trump and Biden, but it also produces our foreign policy and our climate change policy, which are accelerating dangers to the survival of the species. Talk a bit more about the foreign policy. Where do you see it? The U.S. is an empire involved in, in, in what's frequently called its longest hot war in Afghanistan. Barack Obama dropped its estimated 40% more bombs a day than George Bush did. And Trump is dropping, I think, 400% more bombs a day than Bush was, although Trump has been less uh, um, avid to start any new wars. He's merely stepped up all of our wars in lethality by quite a magnitude. The American people have long known that we're the dominant military force in the world. Um, they know we're killing people. They can't seem to bring themselves to inquire who or why. And so it is difficult to organize resistance to U.S. militarism, difficult to organize global responses to threats such as a global fascist resurgence, a massive global inequality, uh, also arriving global resource depletion, climate change, um, and the nuclear threat. Talk more about the fascist threat. How is it panning out in the U.S.? A friend who lives in Worcester walked out this morning and saw a, uh, a very tiny um, white supremacist group. I, I went online, and it's a few guys in this town a flyer advertising uh, to join the some sort of national socialist group or whatever with a um, anonymous web address. I don't know what the threat of fascism is. I hear it argued that fascism only happens when a socialist movement is on the verge of winning and then the 1% or the, the owning class switches to fascism as an alternative. Uh, that seems programmatic to me and in some sense, it's foolish for one thing. Why would you have a socialist movement if that's what's going to happen along the road? But for another, there's, we don't have enough historical data to say that's the only way fascism can occur. As our culture degrades, but also as the array of horrible endings that climate change, for one, um, seems to promise, as that becomes more and more obvious to our leaders, they become more and more panicked. There's the idea that the, the, the person who holds uh, all of the toys, when some of the real crises coming our way start to hit, will survive these crises. And so everyone becomes a gambler, and the crises come, the behavior of the crises come a lot faster. So ruling class is never in charge of fascism, fascism when, it, when it comes. Whether we can do anything to avert it, sane enough to handle even mild how the ruling class in the U.S. has handled COVID, that's not promising. When you refuse to have um, a populist movement on the left, a lot of people are arguing, then you're going to have a populist movement eventually on the right. 
part of the optimism I was talking about earlier, about the market and about just forces of progress in general, steering society in the right directions if we just enjoy ourselves vigorously enough. Part of that optimism has led a, a manager class, uh, maybe the top, the most ed best educated fifth of a society, at least in the United States, to have an ethic of let the market do it, shame and shut up the deplorables who don't respect that, aren't modernist enough. We will simply convince them to admire us and to accept their leadership and the leadership of the people most competent, best able to handle the society. I can't come up with a lot of general quotes. He's not very articulate in terms of stating his ideas or any ideas. But his predecessor, Hillary Clinton, after losing the election, said, well, I should have won the election because the, all of the economic powerhouse states voted for me. It's just the states that can't pull their own weight that voted for Donald Trump. And she basically said that the economically successful, the employable, uh, should be the ones who have the right to vote. That's a bit of an exaggeration. There's too much of a sense, even among the so-called left in our country, that the public can be put in a box. The public doesn't need to be educated, doesn't need to be reached. The public needs to be avoided and identified and labeled and marked. And somehow, miraculously, they won't demand a say in the running of the society. Democracy is a compact where we educate and fulfill the needs of everyone in the society so that they don't choose far deadlier and far more frightening alternatives. And I think that compact is largely broken down as a condition of the industrial societies going on as they are. And as a condition of the U.S. being an empire, we really can't be in the habit of giving, or, giving ordinary people all around the world or here at home um, a fair say. If we repress the majority, we should expect horrible consequences. Country after country around the world, in large part the neoliberal program that the U.S. Uh, uh, leads the world in, of trying to create sort of benevolent meritocratic aristocracies of talent and the employable and hoping the public, the global public won't mind being left behind. That hasn't worked any more than our attempt uh, to militarize that policy in attacks on nations that won't accept a second-class status. And you get quite regressive social movements such as ISIS as, as an extreme example, um, as people's only alternative to a... Uh, robotic autocracy of wealth and even an autocracy of talent um, in the society. A, a, lot of, a lot of your listeners, I think, I don't think that'll even make a lot of sense because for a lot of our, our neighbors, that idea that democracy is anything more than a meritocratic shutdown of the ignorant, I think that's become foreign, and that too is a very frightening trend. How serious do you believe it's come in America, the, the economic inequality, particularly to people of race? The people that Hillary well, Clinton it, called the deplorables. Her deplorable statement, I don't think she would have thought of it or ever described it as targeting victims of racism in America. So I think that any attack on economic equality is massively an attack on people of color in our society. And that's one way that the topic of race, which is absolutely crucial, can distract from some of the causes of despair in the worst hit communities of color. We hear a lot, as we should, about police violence in black and Hispanic communities, but to the exclusion, often, of hearing about the epidemic of untreated diabetes in communities where folks can't actually get their few paths to affordable health care, or, or to the stresses of unemployment in a country with rampant and massive unemployment. 
So I want us to hit hard on the racism issue. Um, and I wanted to lie, as Dr. King stated, giant triplets of racism, extreme inequality. He said uh, extreme materialism and, uh, and militarism have to be defeated all at once or not at all. He lived as a pariah for the last year of his life uh, for the speech in which he said that, in which he came out as, a, as an opponent of U.S. foreign policy and indeed of capitalism. But it seems that with the Black Lives Movement and similar groups, that they sort of have two steps forward and one step back. Is that how you see it? I think that a reaction, it's a very dangerous time at the beginning of what looks like a global depression. Um, we haven't fallen into, into World Depression too, which is like, you know, we, we switched from the Great War to World War One after a second World War happened. And then we, we, can, we have to fear that, especially if climate change is real, that a second Great Depression will occur considering the, the blows that our economy is, is, has taken, a lot of people are worried that it will happen this year, that a financial meltdown to, to will catch up with the forced unemployment, the, the unemployment that is forced, the economic load unforced by COVID. Politics in which people are, are understandably desperate about the unavailability of employment and the unavailability of accessible health care, the rest of the uh, industrialized world, generally has some form of universal health care, which the U.S. and its laissez-faire attitude toward things like COVID is avoided. If our politics focuses entirely on racism at the start, while ignoring massive inequality, I have to hope the American people will be their best selves and not draw a conclusion that the Democrats continually invite, which is that racism is our tool for ignoring the needs of working people, and indeed ignoring the needs of poor people and working people in black and brown communities. How you treat the black communities in your own country goes through to how you treat people in other countries. Yeah, it's very difficult as a citizen of an empire, in part benefiting from the deprivations of, of that empire on the rest of the world, benefiting from other countries being forced into a position or getting the hell out of them. Um, when their leaders give us pretext for, for bombing them. It's very difficult for any citizen, I think, in a, a, such an empire to demand their own rights. There is incredibly inspiring activism. As part of the BLM movement, a lot of our communities most under attack from corrupt and, and, and corrupt and violent police forces. Climate change, it's the elephant in the room. It's the elephant everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We're not going to be on this planet forever. And some sort of idea that there's a, a, an idea popular from the Ayn Rand libertarians among us and from the, the more adolescent sort of um, science fiction fan that failing to keep this planet habitable by humans, we're going to develop a technology to take us halfway across the, uh, the galaxy to find a planet that we will then have to vigorously terraform, change its climate into a climate we can live in. And presumably five or six of the richest people will get to, uh, will bid goodbye to a coffin planet that they'll leave behind here. And they'll go live among the stars happy. And that will be, for, for American values of justice, that would be a, a victory for humankind. But we're not going to terraform anywhere else to live on. We can't even keep our own planet habitable. Of those of our neighbors who are desperate to fix every aspect of their lives to be optimal for their own thriving and their own survival... We call them deranged clinical narcissists, people for whom how well we live, how decently we live is always secondary to the imaginary prospect of living forever. And we should look at the narcissism of, um, 
a society built on enjoying ourselves as much as possible and promising ourselves that we will be on this planet forever or, or that we will be alive forever instead of finding a way to live with dignity and compassion for our neighbors in the times we, time we still have. Our species would last a lot longer if we could muster the maturity to live in such a way that conserves our resources and builds community against the threats, our biggest threats, climate and, and nuclear weapons. Talk about the grassroots communities. Are they organizing? It's hard to tell. Grassroots, of course, doesn't get reported in the media. We try to communicate with each other, but there's always a ferment of unconnected groups. I, I just can't tell you how much or how many. It's generally not going to be, uh, in most cases, um, Voices uh, for Creative Nonviolence, my group. and it's, uh, I'm, I'm speaking my own opinions here and not the opinions of the collective, but our friend George Lakey asked us to help be a clearinghouse for a growing list of groups organizing either to protect their residents from violence following a Biden win, stand against a possible, and there are a number of ways he could do it, a possible coup by Trump and his Republican allies. Uh, he certainly, Trump is, certainly isn't ruling out a coup and certainly isn't ruling out reprisal, reprisals by white supremacist groups and certainly isn't ruling out violent uh, voter suppression by members of those groups. Although I'm hoping that the membership, not the virulence, but the membership of those groups uh, won't be big enough um, in terms of actual violent white supremacists. So a lot of his voters are not among the tiki-carrying murderous crowd that he applauds when they show up at Klan marches uh, uh, around the country. There haven't been that many Klan marches. There have been murders committed to the equanimity of Trump and the equanimity of Trump's voters. But it, it, a lot of our voters are not very keyed-in voters and are voting even on that issue with a lot of untruth, with so much propaganda in our media. It's difficult for voters to take latch on to any issue and say that they've heard the definitive truth about what's going on. It encourages passivity and voting on general feelings of the candidate, which are hard to hard to shake. Any violence involved is horrible. I'm holding out for there not being enough violence to actually shape an election, which would be the most crucial thing. But I, we are organizing to try to develop the, again, I was uh, fighting right, it, it makes sense to me that fighting right-wing populism would require a left-wing populist impulse to organize citizens into, into citizens, into activists, into people with democratic power by pulling together. One excellent tactic, technique for pulling people together is unarmed civilian protection training. Training members of the community stand by each other, even if the Proud Boys come into the neighborhood to cause violence. Standing together against right-wing populists and nonviolently is in itself an example of uh, rudimentary solidarity that, that people are joining these groups in order to re-experience in a world of the atomization of the market, in a world where we're all passive consumers um, with no commitments to society. People are forming disgusting, <laughs> nightmarish commitments to fictional societies and like whatever brotherhoods that the various segments of Trump's base are loyal to. But if we provide an example of real community and real solidarity for democracy, I think we're underestimating the appeal that can have. A lot of fanatic movements are, are born of people with nothing to believe in. And the only people offering, if the only people able to offer them something to believe in are fanatics for ugly uh, philosophies of the fringes, the only ones that haven't been co-opted by a very sanitized political discourse. 
then people looking for a chance to show loyalty and to express meaning in a group. Hopefully they'll resist going to overt fascism. I don't know if I want to use the word patriotism. Uh, ethic of citizenship, that's also a, a fraught word. Best antidote, it would be community that was sane and compassionate. And I think we could perhaps as a country rediscover that in the course of resisting Donald Trump's invitation for us to go fascist. That's amazing that you, you can make it, say a phrase like that, talking about making us fascist. <laughs> that, that's incredible. I'm sorry, I thought you were complimenting my eloquence. No, you're, no. you're criticizing the terrible state Absolutely. of my, my species, my culture, and the world, and you're right to do so. No one could have imagined four years of Trump would end like this. We're hoping it'll end like this and not proceed into eight years. Although, again, there's always the question of whether we get to the end of the eight years. It is a dangerous time. It's not just having a fool in leadership and having entire populations with their hands off the wheel. Electing Joe Biden is an example of a Democratic Party with its hands off the wheel. It's better than Trump, but Trump will have the cogency issue. Trump will have a very easy time. He's been focusing attention on how right-wing Biden is, which is, which is very, uh, how incoherent Biden to be. He seems like, and this is wonderful, a pale reflection of Trump. That's better than any other sort of reflection, um, because that's, that's you don't want a full saturation of a, a picture of Trump. Getting back to the debate, it's alarming that our society has, has allowed uh, leaders of the free world, the, the two potential leaders of the free world, to be so absent, so not there. And I think that is a trend which comes of United States being willing. This is a, um, so this is a Cold War phrase we don't hear so much, but I think it's still part of the ideology. Being willing to lead, unelectedly lead um, a world whether it wants us to or not. The violence of policemen raging through our cities is echoed by the United States and I think originates, partly originates, not just in our legacy of slavery, but in the uh, America's self-arrogated status as the global policeman allowed to murder whoever it wishes. You can just imagine the leaders in China looking at what's happening in America and maybe shaking their heads and thinking, what's going on? If we can't find alternatives that people wish to embrace to rival autocracies, if all that we can present as an alternative to the, the autocracies we criticize abroad, and I don't want to just blanket characterize any society as merely autocratic, because that's as simplistic as characterizing the U.S. as pure chaos. <laughs> but the philosophies that we claim to be arguing against, if what we counterpose to them is the chaos evident in our, in our response to COVID, the chaos evident in the supposed debate last week, Everyone in, in our society that embraces a hateful ideology seems to be doing it in fear of some other ideology. And there's no reason we can't do our best in the time we have left to model a juster, uh, more community-minded, more democratic philosophy with a, 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 that, that stands a chance of keeping the species alive. As we get bigger and bigger, our species continually grows. That's not going to stop until it stops big. The democracy will become more and more difficult and chaos will become more and more prevalent. But perhaps we can do better than this for the time being. Well, you're certainly working on it, aren't you? People can do more. I can do more. We could try to use the incredible technologies of distraction that we have now to connect us instead, even non-present, even with the disease keeping us physically separated. Thank you, Sean, and good luck with it all.
I'm very grateful to you for having me on. I've been speaking with Sean Reynolds, a co-coordinator of Forces for Creative Nonviolence. This blasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to via Save the Children stuff to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03... 94198377 Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Next, Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Bob, you're calling for a global ban on gain-of-function research and also the inquiry into all Level 4 laboratories worldwide. What's the story in these two? Well, the Australian government, the World Health Organisation and most of the countries in the world are calling for an inquiry into where COVID-19 came from. They seem to have a blind spot when it comes to the labs. They have talked about the labs in Wuhan, but there are very similar laboratories around the world doing so-called biodefense research in particular, uh, in which there's um, very dangerous experimentation going on with pathogenic organisms similar to the um, COVID-19 one. We would like that research stopped. It's highly dangerous because it increases the capacity of those pathogens to cross from animals into humans and then to cross between humans as well. Of course, the lab workers claim that this is just to look more effectively for uh, ways to prevent this happening in the future, but in fact it may have, in this case, been the cause of the problem. The trouble is they're not going to tell us, are they, if it was? Well, probably not, because uh, it is focused on having a a biological warfare capability and a lot of countries are doing it including here in Australia unfortunately down at Geelong is the level 4 laboratory which was known as the Australian Animal Health Laboratory but now claims to be preventing human diseases instead some of the work we know going on there is um, highly dangerous and they have some 
very seriously dangerous organisms stored in that laboratory as well. We need to know what's going on. So we're saying to the Australian government, let's hear what that laboratory is doing. Let's know what's going on in the lab. And there's also a petition available to say to world leaders that the so-called gain-of-function research, which is going on in all these labs around the world, should be stopped, at least for the time being. There should be a moratorium. Uh, Some scientists have been calling for a moratorium on this so-called gain-of-function research for at least a decade. We need to know whether the current outbreak, the current pandemic, was actually the result of the escape of an organism from the laboratory and what is going on in those laboratories, not just in China, which is what Scott Morrison and other leaders are focused on, but in all laboratories around the world because they all pose uh, serious threats to human health in particular, but uh, the health of other organisms as well. We know, for instance, that the Animal Health Laboratory, as it was here in Victoria in Geelong, was principally focused on animal diseases until very recently. Those animal diseases uh, are very virulent and very dangerous to animal life as well. Have there been any whistleblowers over the years to sort of let the public know what actually is happening? No, not much. There have been a couple of incidents in um, the contained facilities down in Geelong which have been publicised. A worker being sent home with Newcastle disease, a very virulent chicken disease um, after it got into her eye, was sent home without any treatment. This is going back a decade or two. And then uh, we heard that there was a researcher caught in um, in an airlock in the facility some years ago who actually died over a weekend, was not found in time. Those kinds of incidents have been published, but we need to have a much more thoroughgoing uh, review of that facility and what it's doing as well. We know, for instance, that um, gene drives, which are another whole area of research, mostly funded by the US military, is being carried out there. And this is the um, extinction research where uh, animals which are regarded as invasive or ferals in our environment, things like rats and mice on some islands which are eating the, uh, the eggs of birds, um, where um, this research is aiming to extinct, make those uh, animals extinct. But, of course, once it's released, it can't be contained. And uh, the, the potential for the extinction of, of species is there, and that needs to have a thoroughgoing discussion and a moratorium on it as well. That's called gene drive research. And as I said, it's funded mostly by the American military. So you do wonder what's going on and why. Regenerative agriculture in an excellent program, Australian Stories, last week. Yes, well, that's about the farmer, Charles Massey, who's been doing a tremendous job of promoting the idea that we need to get off the present intensive industrial agricultural framework, which is leading us up the garden path, really. I mean, our farms in... Uh, current climate are um, ruining the soil and water. We need to get on to systems which regenerate our soils and water, which still produce food but are not dependent on high inputs of fertilisers, of uh, synthetic chemicals, patented seed and so on. 
One of Charles's main points is that uh, the inputs like these uh, fertilisers, chemicals and so on, are a big impost on agriculture. Something like 90% of um, his costs were for those inputs. And when he got off that treadmill of uh, constantly pouring these synthetic uh, inputs into his agricultural system and started doing regeneration, uh, he had freed up a lot of resources uh, in his um, agricultural system to uh, actually invest in other things like tree planting, the regeneration of waterways and other uh, systems on the farm. And now he's got this beautiful farm going where he's green and doing very well while the the drought is um, not being managed on adjacent farms. So it's a pretty stark contrast. The the lessons come from... um, the farming system that Peter Andrews has been promoting, the natural sequence farming. So natural sequence farming developed by um, Peter Andrews in New South Wales as well manages waterways much differently. It recognises that uh, before Europeans came to Australia, uh, Indigenous Australians were managing waterways, particularly slowing down the rate of flow of water through the systems like the Murray-Darling and so on did it with a series of levees which spread the water out over the landscape instead of it just going rushing down the rivers. And so when the Europeans arrived, of course, those uh, wet marshlands which surrounded our rivers were um, an invitation to foot rot in the hard-hooved animals that we brought here, the sheep and cattle. Of course, that was a problem for them, so they knocked down all the levees that have been built along the waterways. Today we end up with the Murray-Darling basically being a drain with no uh, levees or any way to slow down the flow of that water through there, with irrigators taking most of the water for the irrigation of their farms. Environmental flows now reduced to very little. Uh, We see that um, we've got problems in the drought particularly of algal blooms and other kinds of pollution in the rivers that are killing uh, most living things, including all the fish, of course, tens of millions of fish, creating a a non-viable system. The regeneration of Australian landscapes should be a top priority for science, for research and development, for the funding by governments and so on. But, of course, it's not. Most of the uh, resources available are going into trying to fix up the flawed system that we currently have and to find ways to squeeze more out of the environment, not care for the environment. And so this is why we need a transition now, a new model of looking after after the landscape. And this de- depends very much on uh, how we manage agriculture in Australia, which is the system in place to manage and to exploit something like 90% of the Australian land mass. There are some major changes needed. Charles and Others like Peter Andrews are um, advocating this. And finally, what we see is that the rural media are starting to sit up and take notice. So in the Weekly Times last week, there was uh, quite a lot of coverage um, of Charles' activities and on other farms as well to talk about how we could do things better in farming. What farmers are saying is that the focus on regenerative farming practices 
has actually yielded higher profits, particularly by sharply reducing those input costs of chemicals, seed, fertilisers and so on, which I mentioned earlier. Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. And if you want more information on many of the issues that Gene Ethics cover, do go to their Facebook page. And I'll continue this discussion with Bob on the program next week. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. This year, the Edward Said Memorial Lecture will be held in Adelaide on Saturday the 17th of October. As with most events around Australia over the past six months, it will be a webinar and the public is invited to participate with registration closing on the 15th of October. The event is an initiative of Australian Friends of Palestine Association and the speaker this year is Melissa Park, well known for her active support of Palestine. I spoke with Bussum Daly, who was the instigator of this lecture, and asked him to talk about the man, Edward Sayed. Born in Jerusalem in 1935, spent most of his life in the US, and asked him what he knew about his early life in Palestine. Yeah, well, uh, as you said, he, he was born in Jerusalem, sort of lived sometime in Cairo as well. Spent some time in the US before he came back and got married and settled down in Palestine. I guess you could say that he was one of the privileged families, not super rich, but uh, comfortable living, uh, him and uh, his sister. And they had relatives in, in Cairo, so he'd done some schooling in Cairo as well. And remember at that time, 
in the 30s and 40s, Cairo was sort of um, uh, booming, uh, I guess. Eventually, because his dad has uh, American citizenship, he would send Edward to a boarding school eventually uh, to the U.S., basically lives there for the rest of his life. He calls himself exiled for the fact not that sort of he became a refugee, although during the war, I think him, him and the family escaped to Lebanon because he couldn't go back to his home and to his land, and hence he became a refugee. A very clever child. Yeah, absolutely. He was interested in everything. Uh, in his memoirs, out of place, uh, he uh, sort of uh, recounts in a lot of details his relationship with his father. Uh, his father was a, a tough man, and a man that uh, sort of didn't have a lot of time for him. And so he has a lot of closer relationship uh, with his mother when he was uh, when he was a child. But he was definitely um, highly accomplished at an early age, and uh, uh, obviously, you know, um, he's highly intellectual, or, uh, and hence um, that's why he excelled when he was sent to the U.S. But uh, apparently, what he describes also that he was an introvert, so that he wasn't somebody who was out there. Uh, I guess he was a book smart. He recounts some uh, periods of happy childhood rather than uh, difficult ones, except for sort of when they have to relocate and they live somewhere else. His study and his academic work, was it mainly on Palestine or was he interested in a great many things in writing? So he's actually a, a literary theorist. What does that mean? So basically, he, um, he looked at his speciality, virtually his PhD, is English and comparative literature. So he did French and English comparison. And he ended up at uh, Columbia University. So basically, he looks at literature and how different uh, authors have affected sort of the flow of this literature and how one learned from another and how they led to what they are today. And I guess. So this is what I understand of his speciality. But I think what's great about him, he saw himself as what he described later as amateur intellectual, a man who actually educated himself about issues that matter to society and does not restrict himself to a profession. So, for example, Said, you know, went into community structures, social structures, into politics. He wrote a couple of books on uh, music. So he actually uh, made it his business to educate himself about issues that... Uh, were not in his speciality. And later in this Reef Lectures for the BBC Radio, which he turned later into a book called The Representation of the Intellectual, he actually argues this point quite strongly. He says, it is our duty to society that we educate about ourselves about issues that matter, to speak up about it without sort of fear and favor. He says the amateur intellectual, in his definition, is the best intellectual because he's not constrained by the profession. You know, if he talks about politics, it's not something that it concerns him in his work. It's something outside that. So we encourage everyone to become an amateur intellectual, to educate themselves, to speak out, to actually be interested. And he says this is the best way to be an intellectual in his, in his definition. That's a great term, isn't it? Amateur intellect. I love it. I love it because it has the sort of naivety of an explorer who looks outside the box other than, you know, be constrained by what you're taught or by what the norms are. A lot of discoveries and insights come from when you actually think freely without constraints. And this is what he, he hones into and he's saying, look, uh, professionals are being trained and taught uh, and, and constrained. 
while amateur intellectuals don't have this. You know, they can't think freely about it. And as long as they're well educated about the topic, they should be able to contribute and contribute more in this view. And to some extent, I'm an engineer by training. I work at the university as a as an academic, and, uh, and yet I do double politics, and uh, very interested in it. And to some extent, the sage work uh, did affect my interest, both uh, you know, activism in Palestine as well as uh, you know just politics in general and, and, and you know societal issues uh, that I care about. What was his line on Palestine? Where was his politics in that sense? He sort of. Obviously, um, he researched it deeply. He had written uh, quite a few books. Initially, he thought that uh, the assumption that uh, you know the West understand and know what the issues are is wrong, and uh, there is a need for us to educate uh, the people in the West in particular. So he wrote a book, uh, The Question of Palestine. And later on, he went and uh, basically uh, got, got involved. He was elected to the Palestine National Council. Uh, he wanted to use his intellect to influence uh, sort of progress. He was the one uh, who apparently written or edited the speech to Yasser Arafat uh, when he went to the UN in the 70s. The famous phrase that uh, I, I can't use here today, holding the rifle of, um, of a liberation fighter in one hand and then an olive branch in another, so don't let the olive branch fall off of my hand or something like that. So in other words... The call for peace, I guess, and, and for a solution. Basically, at that time, the world realized that um, Palestinian issue is not going to go away and that the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, is a representative, so they ended up inviting uh, Yasser Arafat to speak to the UN and, and sort of Said had a, had a hand in writing his speech. Eventually, Said had a big fallout with the Palestinian Authority on before that, uh, the PLO most revolving around Oslo. He was highly critical of the Oslo process. He felt that all the sacrifices the Palestinians have done will amount to nothing because the principles by which Oslo has been built do not uh, tie well with uh, liberation and equity and equality that uh, sort of he was dreaming about. And hence, he written uh, quite extensively against Oslo. He was one of the first ones. When there's a lot of euphoria about Palestinians are going to have a, are going to have a state in a, in a very short period and all of that, he was the one who was sort of warning that, look, the principles that we're using to negotiate are not correct. It's not a government in Palestine. It's an authority, the Palestinian Authority. There is no fixed borders. The settlements are still continuing. You don't leave anything open for interpretation in the future that uh, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And they obviously, um, the PLO as well ignored the uh, issue of the refugees, sort of, uh, or there was no clear solution for the the personal refugees. And all of that it sort of objected to. And hence he was very, very critical of Oslo. And he started talking about sort of uh, equality and uh, the one state. He started sort of... um, discussing the concept of coexistence under one country, sort of, and using democracy and human rights as the principle of that everybody is equal and everybody has rights. You know, we don't have to divide the land. We could sort of share it, I guess. And it was one of the early ones who actually entertained the concept that now, sort of, after Oslo has failed, is, is getting quite a lot of momentum. Did he travel widely talking about Palestine, where he, wherever he was? 
Yeah, he did. He did, both uh, in the Arab world and uh, in Europe, South Africa. I think he was a highly sought-after speaker. He was a brilliant speaker. was in the media quite often, uh, both in the U.S. and in Europe. Obviously, he was an academic, so um, you know he used a lot of uh, his uh, access, I guess, uh, to intellectuals as well as to uh, the public to speak, uh, speak his mind and to contribute. So uh, I think he was also, you know, practicing what he was preaching. Being an amateur intellectual is something he practiced, not just sort of uh, preach. He was you know, giving speeches in, in protests. He was writing opinion pieces, writing books. He was uh, uh, participating in every way he can. To, uh, but we, as Palestinians, we always seen him as our sort of credible intellectual voice in the U.S., his contribution, by the way, comes into obviously the issue of Palestine because he became famous as a scholar when he wrote the book called Orientalism, where he basically discusses the essence of how the of the problems that the East have, or most of the Middle East, where he argues that the West government and and these Orientalists, basically specialists or scholars who come from the West to the East, and they get it all wrong. They have absolutely no clue of what's happening in the ground. They interpreted using measures and means that they understand, not that actually being implemented in the ground. And eventually, what they write becomes they a sort of fact or the reality on the ground. Well, in essence, he was arguing that this is not true, that the West does not get the East and that these Orientalists actually were doing a disservice, both to governments and to scholars, in interpreting what really is happening on the ground. And so he became one of the sort of key, if you want, post-colonial uh, scholars. His book became uh, very famous, and to an extent where, you know, government in the U.S. Uh, were protesting about his influence in academia and how he training sort of students who would sort of want to follow that route away because uh, they have read the book and understood that uh, sort of this is not the way to do it. Did he have the freedom in the US while he was there all those years to tell the truth about Palestine? Because I know in the US and probably here in Australia as well, it's hard to get the story of Palestine out. Yes and no. So um, in his uh, memoirs and in, in a different publications, uh, like, for example, he written a book uh, called Representation of Islam, where he discusses how the media sees Islam in general, not just the East as such. So in his memoir, he discusses a little bit about uh, how he suspected that this phone was tapped, how he knew um, sort of the FBI had, had a phone on him. But he was so eloquent and he was uh, had a lot to say that the media did come back to him for uh, advice, for sort of um, ideas and for interpretations that mostly engaged uh, the the other side, the Zionist lobby in particular, because he is a um, flawlessly English-speaking uh, professor who is a Palestinian who is uh, basically dispelling all the uh, ideology that they sort of uh, trying to propagate and putting a, a different narrative into the public uh, discourse. And that sort of did not sit well with him. So they uh, went out of the way to try and accuse him of this and accuse him of that. For example, not saying he's lying, but by saying he's a refugee or, you know, uh, anything else that he could sort of get the hand on and to tarnish his reputation because he was affected when he was speaking to the media. But no, no, he didn't have a free hand to do it. 
but he did have a say on this uh, issue. made a difference in the U.S. Did you meet him? I didn't, unfortunately. I communicated by email with him before he passed away. One my great encouraged me to, to set up the lecture in 2005 because I was so affected by his death and the early death, I have to say, and by what he was able to contribute to in his life. I read all of his books. Who was the first speaker and who have you contacted over the years to follow this each year to do a, a lecture? Archer was set to, to somehow capture his legacy. In other words, we wanted someone who is fearless, who can speak their mind, and someone who actually can communicate to the public. So there's a lot of academics who don't have this um, attitude or ability to communicate ideas, complex ideas, to the people. So um, at the time, in 2005, we invited Robert Fisk, of course, uh, a famous uh, independent journalist who uh, was positioned in Beirut. Uh, our choice at the time was because... Um, uh, Robert Fisk met uh, Edward Said many times, both in Beirut and in New York. Uh, he knew him well. And uh, I remember 2005, there was still sort of in the uh, aftermath of 9-11 and, uh, and Bali bombing and things like that. So there was, um, and the second intifada, Bob Fisk uh, knew quite a lot about uh, the Middle East, uh, published books about it. So uh, he was our first speaker, and, and uh, he was quite popular um, after that sort of gave the lecture quite a good reputation from the start. From there, we sort of uh, looked at uh, what we call, uh, I guess, public intellectuals are uh, accomplished in their own field and they, and also uh, have a public profile and who have uh, sort of some relation to Palestine and those age work. And we tried to keep the balance between females and males and between uh, uh, even uh, Jewish or non-Jewish. So, uh, so we, we are quite a quite few uh, I could mention in 2006 we had uh, Tanya Reinhardt, uh, who's an Israeli Jew. She was a professor of uh, linguistics, and she written uh, quite a few books about Palestine and Israel. She's a student of uh, Noam Chomsky, and she was uh, her her talk was well received as well. Unfortunately, she passed away two years after uh, in her sleep. Uh, it was a major loss. Uh, Tanya was one of those. Um, Again, fearless uh, advocates who can speak their mind without fear and favor. Uh, after that, in 2007, we had uh, Rada Karmi. Rada is a Palestinian, who uh, a physician, a uh, author, and now academic and commentator. She became a refugee at the age of six from Jerusalem, and her and her family sort of settled in London. And she has a very interesting story to tell. And at the time, she started sort of thinking about and advocating for the one state. Then we had the, um, Sarah Roy, a Jewish academic from Harvard. Her family were Holocaust survivors. Sarah wrote quite a bit about uh, Gaza and Oslo, and uh, she, she spent a lot of time in the Gaza Strip. And uh, she wrote an interesting books about uh, how sort of this peace was not helping the economy and you know, doing um, the opposite of uh, economic growth, basically, the Gaza Strip. And she spoke also about her experience. As a, as a Jewish person who advocates for the right of the Palestinian. In 2009, we had Barry Makdisi, who's the nephew of uh, Edward Said. He's a professor uh, in uh, San Diego, again in, in uh, literature, I understand. And uh, he's also uh, an author of multiple books and commentator on, uh, on Palestine. Then we had uh, Tarek Ali, the um, you know, famous historian, a journalist and writer, and obviously public intellectual. Tarek's 
uh, also uh, written lots of books, uh, some of them uh, involved uh, Palestine as well. And in 2011, we felt we had a coup when Noam Chomsky accepted our offer. He was coming to Australia, and as, as the audience would know, he's a linguist, uh, political philosopher, author. Apparently, he's the second most sorted person in history or something. We had a capacity ground in the, in the town hall in here uh, where Chomsky spoke um, about his experiences and obviously his views about uh, Israel and Palestine. Yeah, and by the way, Chomsky is Jewish as well. Ilan Pape is, again, Israeli Jew. Historian, activist, and author, Ilan had uh, quite a bit to do with Edward Said because uh, Edward Said connected him with the with Palestinian uh, historians. Uh, Ilan's sort of point was that uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis are writing history from their own perspective, and the truth must be somewhere in between. So he sort of um, tried to bridge this gap and to actually tell the facts of what happened on the ground. And, uh, Ilan Papi written quite a few influential books on this, um, and again, he's a professor of, of politics. From there, we, 2013, we had Mustafa Barghouti, uh, who's a member of the Legislative Council. Uh, he also heads one of the political parties. He's an intellectual, he's a physician himself, and uh, some medical NGOs in there. And uh, he spoke about the daily struggles and the occupation and uh, the role of international governments in this. In 2014, we had uh, John Pilger, a you know, well-known journalist, filmmaker, and intellectual. His talk was well received on, uh, on the Middle East. He reported from there before, written about it, and, uh, and he sort of makes a point that not much has changed uh, and that they also did not bring any change to the conditions of the Palestinians. In 2015, we had uh, Dr. Salam Fayyad. He's the immigrant prime minister of the state of Palestine. He worked for the International Monetary Fund, and he spoke about uh, what people describe as everyday resistance. He says our strength is in our um, existence in the land, and our prosperity will guarantee that we would um, remain in there until we get all of our, uh, of our rights. Uh, we, uh, in 2016, we had uh, John Dugard, a South African international human rights lawyer, he was the UN uh, reporter on, uh, on Palestine. He's a professor of law. He spoke about uh, the South African experience and the similarities in the apartheid system that South Africans had and what Israel is doing in, in the West Bank uh, and Palestine. And after that, in 2017, uh, I held a conference in here uh, called Palestine and the West. And the Edward Said lecture was part of that. Gideon Levy, the journalist, the Israeli journalist with the Haaretz newspaper in Israel. And uh, Gideon uh, was quite forceful in, in uh, uh, his message that uh, no solution is going to come from, in, from within and that international pressure is the only way to sort of uh, bring a change and, and peace uh, to Israel-Palestine. He also recounts uh, where his journey as being uh, the um, press secretary of Shimon Peres, Israeli prime minister, and he sort of how he evolved and learned more while traveling to the West Bank and meeting people and so on. And he changed his views. During the last war on Gaza, Gideon Levy was under a lot of attack, and uh, the newspaper had to uh, hire a bodyguard for him because he'd been attacked in the street for his views. 2018, uh, the lecture was part of Adelaide Festival of Ideas, 
Dr. Noura Rakat, uh, who's a Palestinian herself. She's an attorney and human rights advocate. And Noura spoke uh, about the uh, synergy between uh, the Black Lives Matter movement or the Black Liberation Movement and Palestine and how these same struggle against uh, sort of settler colonial uh, powers, being it in Australia, being it in the U.S., or even in Israel, it's all the same story. So she drew the link between what's happening to the Aborigines, to the Palestinians, to the um, uh, African-Americans, uh, and how oppression is in the same mode. In 2019, we had Suman Abu Siti, uh, Dr. Suman Abu Siti. He's the founder of uh, president of uh, the Palestine Land Society, a researcher, he's a refugee himself, and, and an author. And so man's uh, thesis is that more than 50% of the land located by uh, by force by, by Israel and where Palestinians live is still empty today. And he says there's no reason why Palestinians should not be repatriated to their homelands, and he shows how that can be possible, and he documents in, in a lot of details locations where people live and uh, what is the use of the land now, and, and he shows that the right of return is not something that can be compromised and Palestinians have the right to go back to their land and it is possible and feasible, it's not just sort of an idea. list of really um, internationally renowned speakers who sort of came and spoke and we were very proud to be asked in, in such an important lecture honoring this uh, important 20th century public intellectual, uh, definitely regarded as a uh, superstar of an intellectual uh, outside. This year, the, the speaker is Honorable Melissa Park, a lawyer, uh, worked in the UN for, for a long time and peacekeeping missions in Kosovo. In fact, she served two, year, two and a half years in Gaza as well with the UNRWA, and they worked in Lebanon and New York. People may remember her as a member of parliament for nine years uh, for Labour here in the federal parliament for Fremantle. She was a minister for a short period for international development, and then now she's a part of the UN group of uh, eminent uh, experts, basically uh, being asked to comment uh, on different affairs happening around the world. Particularly, she's now uh, a part of a group of three who's looking at uh, a conflict in Yemen and the, and the human rights abuse in, the, in particular. Listeners may remember that uh, Melissa Park stood for the last election in the seat of Julie Bishop. She was attacked for his stance on Palestine. She, I think, want to address some of this issue. Her, her talk is titled The Conscious Pariah, How Distortion of Fact, Contritions of Logic, and Assassination of Character are used against critics of Israel, while it poses as the lucky democracy and the, the eternal victim. She shows how sort of uh, the lobbying here would attack anyone who sort of dares to highlight uh, human rights abuses uh, by Israel in Palestine, while you know, Israel regards itself as, as the victim all the time. Okay, that's quite a list, isn't it? Can we have the details of when it's on, how people register? The lecture will be on the 17th of October. It's uh, being presented uh, via Zoom online, and uh, it's free. So what people need to go is to go to the um, AFOPA website of San Francisco Palestine. So the address is AFOPA, afopa.com.au, and then slash CSML, Edward Said Memorial Lecture. 
And in the L, there is a link to book now, and then we will book, and uh, two days before the event, we'll send you the link for the Zoom. You are all welcome to attend and listen. And as I mentioned before, it is, it is free, but you have to register. It's going to be an interesting lecture, and uh, Melissa is a very good speaker. Thank you so much, and I'll be looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Jan. You've been listening to Bassam Daly, academic and activist for Palestine. Of course, he's a Palestinian himself. And Bassam was the instigator of the Edward Said Memorial Lectures back in 2005. And this year, as you said, Melissa Park is the lecturer, so that should be great. But do get onto the webpage of Australian Friends of Palestine Association to register for the night. For the first time, the Australian Friends of Palestine Association will hold the annual Edward Said Memorial Lecture via Zoom. On the 17th of October, former Western Australian MP Melissa Park will present her lecture, The Conscious Pariah, How Distortions of Facts, Contortions of Logic and Assassinations of Character are used against critics of Israel while it poses as the plucky democracy and the eternal victim. For free registration, visit www.afopa.com.au. That's www.afopa.com.au. Australian Friends of Palestine Association is a 3CR supporter. FreeCR believes that reporting of the ongoing issues surrounding COVID-19 is in the public interest and that our listeners tune in to hear in-depth analysis from a progressive perspective. We also know that the saturation of reporting in the mass media can lead to an increase in fear, anxiety and mental distress. If you are feeling distressed, we encourage you to take some time out from all media coverage and most importantly, reach out if you are needing help. Call Lifeline on 131 114. Get LGBTIQ plus counselling between 3pm and midnight by calling Switchboard on 1800 184 527. Call Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. Or Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800. 3CR, radio for the community since 1976. Stand slow when your back's against the wall. Gotta look deep within yourself. Gotta rise above it all. When no one's there to comfort you, gotta push your fears aside. Rely on your inner strength. Find a sense of pride. The extradition hearing for Julian Assange, Australian journalist and publisher, at the Old Bailey in London has concluded its fourth and final week. Activist and journalist Jacob Gregg has followed the proceedings throughout and I spoke to him at the weekend for a summary of the shortened week and analysis of the month. I start off by saying this was strange, but the only strange thing would really be if nothing strange happened. Basically three things were discussed. First of all, Julian's health, his mental health and his depression... That was interesting because the prosecution just kept basically bullying the medical staff who were giving their opinion of Julian's condition. 
both on depression and on the autism spectrum. The prosecution were basically um, arguing that the medical experts weren't actually experts. And in response, they put forward their testimony of their own medical doctor, and his name, Nigel Blackwood, since the other day, we found out that Nigel Blackwood, um, who comes from King's College, is actually connected to the UK military and the, and the Pentagon and provides um, medical research for the UK um, Ministry of Defence and the Pentagon. So for the US to be calling him as an expert witness is like an in-house, an in-house job. So, but unfortunately, that wasn't found out until after. At any rate, the way the trial is going, the trial went, sorry, is that prosecution generally get four hours to cross-examine defence witnesses, but and they provide their witnesses as written statements so that the defence do not get the opportunity to cross-examine the prosecution witnesses, which is an absolutely crazy um, state of affairs. We also had people like... Um, Patrick Coburn from The Independent, who was talking about the way WikiLeaks provided information that journalism is meant to provide. He's an um, independent journalist uh, who does a lot of work for The Independent, but he was based in Afghanistan at the time that the Afghan war logs came out. So he had first-hand information and first-hand use of that information. He reckons it changed the way war reporting was done. We also had, we had small things. We had things like a statement from Noam Chomsky in support of Julian. But the way the court is, is that nothing gets read out in court and nothing gets tabled. Just um, papers are shuffled between, often papers are just shuffled between defence, prosecution and the, and the magistrate. So while we know what Noam Chomsky's support is through other writings and other statements is made on, on um, WikiLeaks and Julian, we really don't know what he said in, what was said in court. We have a strange situation where, going back to a minute on Julian's mental health, there was a, a subcase, I guess you'd say, about them finding a razor blade in Julian's cell. This was subject of another little court case um, that ran earlier on. What was absolutely astounding is that the, the judgment of that case, the paperwork of that case ran to 19 paragraphs, and the judge, Vanessa Baratza, decided she was only going to keep the allow the concluding 19th paragraph to be tendered as evidence. It's very strange, indicative, I guess, of the situation, when the magistrate not only decides what will and will not make it into the court, but which paragraphs of which documents will make it in and won't make it into the court. That's um, another unprecedented, unprecedented thing. What's the story about the razor blade? The razor blade was found in its cell and there was some discussion about who put it there and how it got smuggled in, how it got smuggled into the cell. I'm not sure of all the ins and outs of it and I'm still a bit confused by how it got there and all the rest of it, so I'd rather not comment on it. One of the strange things we had, or one of the bombshells we had this week, was two whistleblowers from the Spanish firm UC Global who provided written testimony of the links between their firm and UC Global and their firm's owner, David Morales, and the US government and other US figures um, like Sheldon Adelston, who's a very close personal friend of Donald Trump, how that he'd admitted that they'd gone to the dark side, quote-unquote, and were now 
dealing directly with figures, intelligence figures, inside the United States. He also, one of the witnesses came out with an amazing piece that spoke about how UC Global had discussed leaving doors open so that Assange could be kidnapped by American operatives and also the possibility of poisoning him so that to end the whole sorry saga in their terms. David Morales reckons that all those suggestions were discussed with his people in the United States. It's important just to dwell on that for a moment that we actually have Spanish security firm which is in court at the moment in Spain dealing with the United States government to provide information including privileged client legal team information to the prosecution and discussing kidnapping him and possibly murdering him. And yet the evidence is tendered in court and nothing is done by it. Meanwhile in Spain the American government is refusing point blank to cooperate in any way shape or form with the Spanish trial against UC Global, where they're, they're taking UC Global to court for abrogating Julian Assange's human rights. We've got a situation where even the people who were putting the microphones and cameras in there are speaking up in Julian's defence, and it's nothing is said of it. It's played as if this is a, um, a normal way things are done. The defence is absolutely frustrated because nothing they say gets purchased. Again, the situation is that their witnesses are cross-examined for four hours, and for four hours, the British legal team working for the Americans just badger and bully the witnesses, doing things like asking them to repeat when they refer to a judgment or some um, precedent in some other case, they ask them to repeat word for word the judgment. Now, obviously, nobody could do that without the paperwork in front of them. And when they can't do that, they try to use that as evidence that the witness doesn't actually know what they're talking about. It is absolutely crazy what's going on. That's about the extent of it this week. You know, some journalists like Patrick Coburn talking and um, Ian Cobain, who was with The Guardian, talking about the use of WikiLeaks and also talking about, and there's another thing that came out, they kept the prosecution referred to um, David Lee's book from The Guardian and about people saying that Julian had said that he didn't give a shit about any US undercover operatives who might get hurt by the releases. And they were referring to something he said at a dinner that they were not even at. And yet the defence team has had somebody come up and, who was at that dinner and say, no, he never said that. In fact, he went to great pains to redact all names himself. Patrick Coburn corroborated that he had redacted, I think, 15,000 pages himself. A whole heap of other journalists who he's worked with have said that over time. Yet prosecution keep on relating and using what are obviously lies and falsehoods as if they were facts. This is, this is going on, and, and it's not just the prosecution. Even in the Sydney Morning Herald this week, the only reporting we had in the, in the Sydney Morning Herald, I'm trying to remember her name, but I can't, spoke about how Julian ran to the Ecuadorian embassy to avoid facing rape and sexual assault charges. And, I mean, it's well documented that there were no charges. 
It's also well documented that the reason he went to the Ecuadorian embassy was because he was afraid that the United States would try to extradite him and charge him under espionage, which is turned out to be 100% correct on it. Yet even today, the only reporting we get in rags like the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age is continuous regurgitations of totally discredited uh, stories. What we're seeing the prosecution do is what we're seeing the rest of the media industrial complex do all around the world with very, very few exceptions. So that's, that's what's been happening in, in this week. Can I focus for a few moments on the extreme inhumane conditions in which Julian would be kept imprisoned in the US if he was extradited? And I know that did come up. Does anyone ever query the US and these, these prisons that they've got are crimes against humanity, the way that people are treated well, in yes. these prisons? Yes, in fact, a former prison warden and chief warden who oversaw Metropolitan Correctional Centre in New York and also worked for the US prison system for 20 years, a woman by the name of Maureen Bird, and testified that Julian would be put on special administrative measures. And she also went on to say, I'm just going to try to find the reference here, she also said that during my 28 years with the BOP, that's the Board of Prisons, there was time she was responsible for responding to administrative measures. She says she can't work out how the BOP continues to get away with it. Quote, I'm uncertain how the BOP has been able to continue with these types of isolation units given all the studies, reports and findings on the horrific physical and psychological effects they have on the inmates. This isn't some lefty from the police accountability unit. This is a governor, a chief warden at New York Central Correctional Prison saying this. People are aware of what's happening, but in every step of the way, of course, things like special administrative measures, there's not a blanket rule of who gets given them and who doesn't. So at every step, the, pr the prosecution is able to say, yes, but you don't know that Julian Assange would put under Sam's special administrative measures. You can't know that. No, of course you can't know that. You can't know that. Nobody could know that, but when you look back at all similar cases, and there haven't been many similar cases, but cases of you know, crimes against the United States, terrorism cases, all these kind of things, hacking cases, they're all put under special administrative measures. Now, the prosecution is saying, well, just because everyone else has doesn't mean that Julian Assange will. It's absolutely outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. And the prosecutor himself, and Lewis, who the United States is using, you know, well, he's a QC, of course, but like all, Q all QCs are, are very in intricately connected with um, the ruling class of Britain, obviously, that's why the Queen's Council, he's actually currently the Chief Justice of the Falkland Islands. So just as an indication of where, where this guy's loyalties and, um, and headspace is. But over the preceding three weeks, the, the instances I gave there were mirrored every step of the way. From the very opening, Jan, from the very opening when Julian was given the new superseding indictment, literally an hour and a half, I think it was, might have been two hours, before he went to court. And in that time, 
he had to ha- he had to be processed, showered, X-rayed, strip searched again, transported. So he never had hardly any time to look at it. He had like half an hour with his with his lawyers. So the lawyers put forward this thing that as they haven't had the time to fully investigate these hundreds and hundreds of pages of a new superseding indictment, that they proceeded with the extradition trial on the basis of the old indictment, or they adjourn it for a while until they can get everyone can get their head around these. I think there were 900 pages. I, I don't want anyone to quote me on that. But hundreds of pages of the new indictment. Now the magistrate, Judge Vanessa Barista listened to arguments back and forth between defence and prosecution for four hours and at the end of four hours pulled out, without even trying to hide the fact, pulled out paperwork from the back of her book and read her judgment. A judgment that was already written, maybe by her, maybe by someone else. It wouldn't surprise me if it was the first time she read it, before any of the arguments took place. So, I mean, if that didn't show you that the whole, at least that four hours was a total sham because the judgment was written before the arguments were heard, that gave us an indication of what we were going to come to for the next four weeks. And then the prosecution never failed to deliver. Every witness was belittled and bullied. People had their expert status questioned time and time again to to the point where one witness, absolutely sick of having his expert status questioned, turned to the prosecutor and said, your firm has engaged me on numerous occasions to act as an expert witness. So it's a bit jolly you turning around here and saying I'm not. You know, so that's what they're getting to. Even an expert witness that the prosecutor himself used was being questioned as to the credibility of his expert status. That's the nature of the court trial we've had. But on the upside, the arguments were made even though a lot of people are unaware of what arguments were made because access to the courtroom was very restricted. We've had a situation where the feed to outsiders, the telephone feed, the the tech feed, was cut and they couldn't get it working. And then it was cut again because some people were put on the feed by accident. And rather than just remove them, they just decided to cut the whole feed. NGOs were cut out of the of the feed. Even Amnesty International were cut out. Hardly what I call a radical organisation, though I do support their work. The only people who did have access were Reporters Without Borders, who were international organisation of of reporters built along the lines of um, Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontières. So they're the only people who had the feed. They had to get the information of what happened out. Mary Kostakidis had a feed um, from Australia. She's, I think, the only Australian who had a feed. And even she, talking on the radio the other night, spoke about how she couldn't quote things verbatim. She couldn't record things. She couldn't take screenshots of anything. She just had to basically listen and make handwritten notes. So they did everything they can to limit access to the proceedings, right down to the fact that there were six seats in the courtroom for the public. And of those six seats, two of them were constantly covered with reserve notes and because they were put aside for for guests of the crown, basically, British VIPs. And not on one single day were either of those seats used, yet nobody else was allowed to use them. And then you had 
the absolute horrific, petty situation where Julian's old man, John, along with John Pilger and Craig Murray, were forced to walk up six flights of stairs to listen proceedings through a kitty speaker in a room because there was no lift available or no other room they could possibly have used. It was like every step of the way, the most petty, puerile and nasty little obstacles were put in people's way from getting information of what's actually happening in the court. And now Julian's back in Belmarsh till the 4th of January. He's back in Belmarsh and sometime in mid-November, I forget the date, the summaries are going to be presented to the court. So he'll probably be taken back to the old Bailey to sit in his glass box. And there's the other thing. I mean, I haven't mentioned yet today. Julian is sitting in a glass box at the back of the court. In order to speak to his legal team, he needs to basically crawl to the, um, according to John Pilger, I don't know why crawl, but maybe because he's cut or something, and crawl to the slit in the wall and talk to somebody who will then write a note to somebody else to pass on to his legal team. This is like, if that's not petty, there's no other reason, there's no other way to describe it, there's no reason for it. But anyway, in our mid-November, when the summaries are uh, submitted, they will only be submitted on paper, they won't be discussed, they won't be read, but there'll be the more than likely be the farce of having to go into the courtroom and, and place them on the judge's desk. So there might be an opportunity for him to go to the old daily, though God knows why he'd want to, at that stage. Now, the important thing is that regardless of what happens on the 4th of January... Oh, look, there is another important point I haven't made yet. It's, it's a very, very important point. At the end of the third week, when they were talking about dates and time for the closing summary, closing submissions, she actually asked both the defence and the prosecution teams what effect the judgment and the US presidential elections would have on each other. Now, that is admitting, that is opening up, that is stating plainly that this is a political case because it was a purely criminal case who the incumbent is at the time of a, at the time of the judgment would make absolutely no difference. So the judge is basically brought out into the open and was probably the best witness the defence team has had that this is a political case because the whole case is now being timetabled around a US presidential election. And who knows, with the recent news about Donald Trump maybe having COVID-19, who knows whether there are going to be any further delays. But yeah, that's the situation. It's a political case, and whatever happens, whatever the judgment is on the 4th of January, I'm sure the defence team, if they lose, will put in an immediate appeal to the Supreme Court. And I can only assume that the prosecution team if they lose, will also put in an immediate appeal to the High Court. So what this means is that the trial is really, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like we're a quarter time, mate. Well, finally, Jacob, I'd like to thank you on behalf of myself and all the 3CR listeners for bringing this to us over the last month. Oh, mate, and likewise, on behalf of um, myself and on Julian's friends and supporters, in London and here, and his family, I'd like to thank you for covering it, mate. Talk to you again.
I've been speaking with journalist and activist Jacob Gregg, and you can hear more of Jacob every Friday here at 3CR at 5pm with his Friday rave.